Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Tonight, I'm going to start a new series. It's going to be a short one, I think, just maybe a handful of weeks, but it's called Doing Things God's Way. Doing Things God's Way. And so um, we're going to spend the, most, uh, the majority of our time in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 10 tonight. But before I read that, I want to give you a little bit of history and a little bit of backstory about what's going on before we get into where this scripture really is. And so um, everybody is familiar with King David and his son, King Solomon from the Old Testament, who um, Solomon was the wisest man not named Jesus to ever live. And so after King David has passed away, King Solomon takes the throne. King Solomon reigns for about 40 years, and now he, he passes away, and there are more kings that are going to be ruling over Israel. There is, um, uh, and Israel has a string of mostly wicked rulers after Solomon dies. These kings consistently turned away from God and acted opposite of God's commands. Now, um, this lasted for decades. Decades this lasted for. They were, um, they were wicked. They were setting up um, uh, false idols on either end of the nation, having the people of God come down and, and worship these false idols and kneel down and sacrifice before them. And so um, they were turning the hearts of the people away from God and to these pagan, um, these pagan belief systems. And so, um, so the Lord inter- intervenes. This one king, you know, the next king after Solomon comes in, and most of them, there's one of them that was okay, Asa, he did well inside of, in the sight of God, but all the rest of them in this time period, they were, you know, profoundly wicked. And God would send his prophet to them and say, hey, it's time to cut this out, it's time to stop all this nonsense, it's time to stop turning people away from me. And the king would ignore him, do his own thing, and so God said, all right, you're out. Okay, this guy passes away, his son would take over, or someone would come in and take over from his family, and they would do the exact same thing. God would give them the same warnings, they wouldn't listen, and on to the next one, and on to the next one, until we get down to the king. It's the first line there in your notes if you're following along. It's King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was more evil than any of the kings before him. He disobeyed God's instructions, even, and even further, married an evil pagan woman named Jezebel. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard of the name Jezebel and know that she was really wicked, but you may not know why. And so um, let me tell you why Jezebel is wildly wicked. She openly encouraged and practiced Baal worship. Baal was kind of like the major um, false god of the time that most of the people that were in this, uh, in this region would worship. And so she was not only um, encouraging everyone to worship, she was the daughter of one of the, um, the, the leading Baal worshipers, and she kind of took that mantle on from her own father. Um, she put 400 prophets of Baal on the Israeli payroll, so she was using God's money to pay for wicked teaching. That's a problem. She murdered many of the prophets of God. She encouraged the Israelites to turn their back on God and was relentlessly ruthless against the commands of Yahweh. So this is, the Bible specifies that there were nobody worse in this time period that was a king of Israel than Ahab. He was the worst one. So I would think if I'm I'm following the pattern here, God's kind of, you know, telling somebody straighten up. I'm going to get rid of you. 
They don't. He gets rid of them. The next one, same thing. Straighten up, doesn't, gets rid of them. So I would think if it's the most wicked one, Ahab, he'd come through again and be like, chop you off and then let's keep going down the line. But God doesn't do that. He picks the reign of the most wicked king that Israel's ever seen to showcase and display his love anew for Israel. He does this um, in a, in, a, in a way that we're going to see here. And he sends his prophet, Elijah, one of the, one of the big dog prophets of the Old Testament, he sends him uh, to speak to King Ahab and to the nation of Israel. Okay, so you get the picture, right? There's decades of terrible kings. They're turning away from God. There's, there's golden calves. There's false idols. And there's all these things that are, are being worshipped, but not the God of Israel. At this point is where we pick up this story in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Now let's read together. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him, and camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon, and I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. And there's a whole bunch, there's a whole bunch in this ten, short ten scriptures that we just read, actually nine and a half scriptures that we just read. <clears throat> but there's a couple things that kind of, as I was doing my study for this week, that kind of sprung up in me that I felt compelled by the Spirit of God to, to deliver to you. And so I want to go over a couple of those points today during the rest of our time together. Okay, so number one in your notes. Doing things God's way has consequences. <clears throat> Doing things God's way has consequences. You may be like, well, of course, Matt, every decision has a consequence, right? If, you're, if you don't have any food in the refrigerator and you need to eat and you wait until the store closes, you're not going to be able to go, you know, it's too late. You're not going to be able to get any food that night and going to be hungry, right? A decision to wait had consequence. If you drove by the grocery store and realized it was closed and then stopped by Taco Bell on the way home, that decision is going to have a negative consequence 45 minutes to an hour past the point where you finish that meal. Some of you understand what I'm saying because you've eaten Taco Bell before. That that chalupa is going to come back and bite you in about 45 minutes. See, decisions and consequences. The jokes are bad, but the message gets better. But... Every decision has consequences, but doing things God's way has eternal consequences. Has eternal consequences. So we're going to talk about three of those, uh, three of those consequences, doing things God's way. We're going to talk about three of those consequences tonight. Letter A in your notes. One of those consequences is our focus changes. Our focus changes. You know, if we go back up to that passage of Scripture and see what Elijah told Ahab, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. 
Well, it turns out if you continue to reading down this passage, this is actually a three and a half year drought that started when God told Elijah, go tell him the drought starts today. It's going to be years. It turns out to be three and a half years, 42 straight months. As I was reading this passage, I kind of asked myself this question, and Sarah, in your notes, I kind of put my own internal questions in your notes, so we're going to have a conversation inside my head with you today. Uh, Why three and a half years of no rain? Why couldn't it just be one harvest cycle? Why couldn't it be like six to nine months? It's like, just ruin one of their harvests, then get their attention, and then kind of let the rain come back and kind of flex that way. How in the world... Does it make any sense to last three and a half years of no rain? And as I was studying, I read, I read an interesting statement from someone in one of my commentaries, and he said this, God is showing his people the false gods are powerless. So Baal, this god that they're worshiping, that, that Ahab is worshiping, that Jezebel is like a priestess of, they believe Baal is the daughter of, the, or is the son of this all-powerful God named El, E-L, not the letter, but E-L. And they believed that El had a, had a child with this, with this fertility goddess named Asherah. Okay? They had a child and produced Baal. Baal was so strong that in the field of battle, wherever the mythological place is for gods to fight... Um, you know this is made up. You know this is a man-made thing because it all has to do with like you know materialistic things. Um, Baal goes and he actually defeats all the other gods and becomes like the supreme god. So who they're worshiping is the strongest god in their false religious belief system and his mother who produced him. They think they have got the two most powerful beings that they are worshiping here in the midst of. Israel in the midst of the promised land where Israel sits in Canaan. There had to be a moment where when they realized they were in a drought and word began to spread that Elijah had given this word to King Ahab, there's not going to be any rain, that everybody said, no problem, we serve and we worship the greatest God, Baal, and his mom, Asherah. And so what they would do is they would actually build things called Asherah poles, And they would take a a tree and cut off all the limbs, which is ironic to me because that's where all the fruit is. So go back to this, the stump, the dead thing. And they trim off all all the branches and they just leave the tree trunk and they carve images in it. And when they do that, that is an Asherah pole. That is the way they come and pay homage to Baal's mother who gave birth to their supreme god, Baal. They went through and, and they, would, they would cut down some of these trees and these groves and they would have entire groves of these Asherah poles, which were um, sometimes they would just cut down the entire tree and cut it down and actually post a pole in the ground and carve it. And they would worship there because they thought they were worshiping the supreme being. And so here we have all of these false gods being worshiped that have come from the mind of man. And then you've got the ultimate, supreme, almighty God, Yahweh, who said, I'm turning the rain faucet off for three and a half years. These guys don't follow Yahweh. Who do they follow? 
Baal and Asherah. So what do they do? They go back to the Asherah poles, these trees. They go back to the, the idols of Baal and they begin to sacrifice, to, to pour out their, their sacrifices, to cut themselves, to offer sacrifices to these fake idols. And day after day goes by and nothing happens. Nothing happens happens. There's no amount of sacrifice, no amount of, of passion, of, of, of praise or worship they can give this false God that will turn the rain back on for them. In today's culture, we don't really think of any of the things that we struggle with as idols because you know, unless you have some Hindu friends who like have, you know, like little Shiva idols or like little deities, like one of their 300 million deities that, that are present in the Hindu religion, you won't really see people have actual idols in, our, in the general area of our culture. But these idols do very much exist. Big one. If I asked anyone in here to say, what is one of the major idols we deal with in our country and our culture? Everybody, I think maybe one of the first answers you would say is money. Why? Because I'm sacrificing relationships with my wife, my kids, my daughter, my son, my family, because I'm going to go out there and get mine. I'm going to make myself a name. I'm going to go chase money. And when you sacrifice, when that becomes the, the chief thing in your life and the chief pursuit outside of God and what you sacrifice the most for, it is an idol. Another thing that our culture uh, um, is very big on pursuing is sex. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture and it's for most people um, that are not saved, there's a lot of people who, who have this idea of I just need one more physical conquest. For guys, you know, they used to say it was a notch on my belt or whatever, you know, being with another woman. And now it's, you know, women kind of have a similar idea of I'm going to see how many men I can be with. And there's this hyper-sexualized culture. It changes the way people dress, the way they eat, the way they make their hair, the way they work out, the number of times they work out a week because they want to be presentable to the opposite sex to make sure that there is some type of um, transaction in the future sexually. And when everything revolves around me getting into that relationship and my pursuit of God is, is dampened or ignored because of that, then my friend, it is an idol. One of the last things that, um, if I was just thinking right off the top of my head, that, um, that we glorify or idolize in our culture is power, influence. People climbing the ladder, stepping on whoever they, they can to get to the next level or to fight for the job and then and try to get higher and higher until they get to the the c-suite if you're in corporate america or until you're the guy who has the biggest business in your industry and when people sacrifice everything for that and ignore god in the midst of it my friends it's an idol and we can look back at this story and understand that when we serve something other than god it proves out to be fruitless it proves out to be fruitless I listened to a guy on a podcast this week. He was a Christian guy. He's a, a, a real Christian, not just a guy, a Christian by name, right? <clears throat> He's a Christian guy, and he said that uh, he was on a reality television show, and he said that you know he doesn't really classify himself as a celebrity, but he, um, because of his show and the, him being on television, he got to meet a lot of real celebrities. And he said, well, you know, when we're in front of everybody, everybody puts their best face on and their best mask on. He's like, but when these guys talk to me behind the scenes, the most miserable people 
I meet when they let the mask down and tell me about their life are people who are unsaved pro athletes. I thought how ironic was that? The top three pursuits in our culture can easily be classified as money, sex, and power. And these pro athletes have all of this money to feasibly do whatever they want whenever they want. They're surrounded by women at all costs and at, at, at all times. And they can have whatever they want, whatever type of relationship they want. They're, they literally sit in arenas where people chant their name and celebrate their physical accomplishments on a field or a course they, they, or a court. They go anywhere and are recognized. They have all three of these things. But ultimately, when you get behind closed doors and you peel the layers back, these three idols pursuing these things become nothing because those things fill temporarily but never fulfill. We see this at play in this story with Elijah. He is, what God is doing is showing his people, hey, go back over there and try what you're doing. It doesn't work. And when you realize it, I have been here waiting for you the entire time. We're going to do God's, if we're going to do things God's way, it's going to have consequences. And one of those consequences is our focus changes. <clears throat> our focus goes away from the things we want, the idols that are in our life, and focuses back on God himself and following his path. Letter B, the second thing that, a second consequence for doing things God's way is that our understanding changes. <clears throat> our understanding changes. As I was reading this story, I thought it was very odd that God tells Elijah, big dog prophet, right? Like he is, he is one of the major ones of the Old Testament, tells him, go drop this word on Ahab, right? Go drop this word. And then what happens? Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by the Kareth Brook. <clears throat> and my question that I had in, in my own head was, why in the world... Does God Almighty tell his prophet who just delivered his word to the wicked king to go hide? I mean, why didn't God just post angels around Elijah in his house? Why didn't he just show up? I mean, he's speaking and doing a supernatural thing by causing it not to rain for three and a half years. I mean, sending a couple angels down to keep guard for Elijah while he goes about his daily business. Is that too much? No. Why does he got to go hide? See, this would um, be one of those places where it would be very good that um, I'm not God. Because if it was me... I would look at the children of Israel and go, oh, you want to go cut down trees and carve faces on them and bend down and worship them? Oh, you want to go over here to this fake god Baal or whatever and start kneeling down to him and crying out? You might as well be crying out to the, to the dirt because it's going to do the same thing. Oh, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to cause it to rain only on Elijah. He's not going to go anywhere without this little cloud around his head for three and a half years. Y'all are going to be dry and parched and thirsty. And this man is going to be frustrated because he is drenched everywhere he goes. The man pulls up an umbrella. That cloud's going to go right up under the umbrella and keep raining on him. And he is going to be soaked. And every time it drips on you, it's going to go and just dissolve. And you're going to be frustrated. 
I'm going to put up an electric fence around his house, and I'm going to cause all this food to start coming out of the ground that he didn't even plant. And I'm going to show everybody here's where the food is. And when you reach over to touch it, you know what I mean? Like you're going to get a little jolt and you're not going to be able to touch any of it. And this is a great reason why Matt is not God. <clears throat> because I'd have been like, oh, yeah, what are you going to do? No, 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 nah, you ain't. No, run back over to that, that, that uh, wood stump you've been bowing in front of. And think about how ridiculous that is. No, go ahead. Cry out a little bit louder. Yeah, let's see you do it. That would have been me. And that's a reason, a very good reason, one of the millions of reasons I am not God. See, we laugh and chuckle because our culture, our culture loves things like this. We like this because we live in a gotcha, a one-up, or a drop-the-mic culture. We want to end the conversation with the bam, with the zinger. We want to drop the knowledge and the truth where that person can't say anything and walk away and they go, man, that guy's intellect and wit is just unparalleled. We want people to look at us and be like, man, you got him. Yeah, you set that fool in his place. Man, you tore that girl up. And we love that. But that is not what God is about. His goal is not merely trying to showcase his power to finite beings that he created. No, his purpose is to change hearts. His purpose is changing hearts. See, our understanding matures when we continually put our trust in God. The more you put your trust in God, the more opportunities you take to obey Him, what happens is your understanding of what's really going on matures. Why in the world go hide? Why go hide? We find later that Ahab sent his soldiers to every city in the area to try to find Elijah. See, God wasn't hiding his man because what if Ahab finds him and he's going to kill him? I'm afraid. No, God's not afraid of anything. He's not pulling him out of harm's way because he doesn't think Elijah can handle it. No, he puts him in a place Ahab will not look because he's not only showing himself the love he has for his people again and reminding them their hearts have wandered off into nonsense and to come back home. But he's showing the most wicked ruler in Israel's history that nothing you do in your own strength will ever trump his word. There's nothing that he can do in his own strength that will stop what's going on. He was trying to find Elijah. And had he found Elijah, had Elijah just done whatever he wanted and went home and expected the, you know, the angels to come around and the fence to go up like I was talking about, had he expected all of that to happen and he had done all of that, there's a great chance Ahab would have caught him and have tortured him until the point of say the word so that the famine and the, the drought will be over. Or if you're not going to do that, I'll kill you. God put him by a brook on purpose because 
he knew Ahab would look in all of these other places and not at the outlier. He is saying to Ahab, hey, you can run around with your own strength all you want. You can send your armies out to go find my guy all you want. You can ask everybody you want to, every other king, every other leader, every other gatekeeper, has Elijah come in here all you want. But when I have said something will happen, there's nothing your little puny human rule will do about it. God didn't hide Elijah because he was afraid to put him out there. He hid him because he had a plan to reveal his heart to his people and show the wicked ruler this is the wrong way to go. See, when our understanding changes, we can do things God's way without the hesitation. <clears throat> the third thing that, the third consequence of us doing things God's way is this letter C in your notes says, our approach changes. Our approach changes. So not only did I find it odd that, you know, it was three and a half years of no rain, how come so long? And not only did I have a question of why is he hiding, my next question is why didn't Elijah ask why he was hiding? See, because I would have done that, right? Okay, wait. You want me to go to a place I've never been before and sit outside for an undisclosed amount of time, drink water from a brook that we all know it's going, ain't going to rain, because I just said it ain't going to rain. You want me to keep drinking water until there's no more water left in here, and birds are going to come and feed me bread and meat, and not just every day, but twice a day. This may not be the Lord talking. This is that chalupa I had on the way home from the, from the, uh, the closed grocery store to Taco Bell. This is that. This is that consequence right here. This, is, this can't be you, Lord God. Like, not today, Satan, right? Like, get away from me. I'm not going out there. But he doesn't even ask a question. Elijah, Elijah doesn't approach this strange command by questioning. It's the next line in your notes. He understands the Almighty God has given him instruction, and he immediately obeys. There's no record of a back-and-forth tussle between Elijah and God. Explain yourself to me. Uh, why do I have to do that? Go where? Is there an Airbnb out there that I'm staying in that you've kind of hooked up for me? Is there a tent somewhere that I can sleep in? No, just go sit there in the middle of a famine by a brook and wait for birds to come drop food off for me. And what does he do? He immediately gets up and goes and sits by the brook. That's wildly convicting to me. Because my approach to anything that I have been given to do as a man of God through his word or from the prompting of the Holy Spirit is for me to ask this question, why? Why? This doesn't make any sense. But if I'm going to do things God's way, my approach to His direction has to change. What if we made collectively one change as a church? We changed our approach to church. 
What if we didn't just come here because the good book says to, and we didn't just come here to hear the good word and to be blessed and shake some hands and leave, but what if we came here because we knew that the word of God that was being presented to us was going to be something we were about to use? I hear some people say, man, love the love series that we did for eight weeks. That's great. You know why it resonates with you? Not to make you a better person. Not to make you um, elevated status among all your church, your other church friends, Christian friends who, who don't know the same, much, the same amount about love as you do now. It's because you are about to be put in a position to use it. We are going to face a situation where we must enact what we have learned. Why in the world did God prompt Ryan a couple weeks ago to sit here and preach to us about the power of our words? Because we are going to soon, if you haven't been yet, you are going to be in a scenario where you're going to need to use your words in the way that Scripture delivers for us. What if we changed our approach not to just come and not to just say, I did it, and oh yeah, I got a text this week, invited me, I might as well go. What if we came and said, I'm about to need whatever's presented to me in some way, shape, or form because I'm going to need to exercise what I've been taught. Why exercise what I've been taught, Matt? Why? Because you now become a catalyst for what Scripture calls loving your neighbor. If there's something in you, you hear a message about holiness, and there's a scripture attached to it, and it just grips you, and you can't get away from it, that is because there's a change that needs to happen in you and in me, because we're going to be in a position where we're about to have to choose holiness. You're not learning all this stuff because, oh, that's what we do at church. No, he is about to put you in a scenario where you can use what you've been taught from the word of God and then you can reflect and showcase his love, his holiness, a life that is submitted to him to a dying world and then turn around and point those people back to where we got the answer from. That's why we need to do things His way. Our approach changes. My job is not just my job for a way to provide for my family. Yes, it does that. But there is another reason that I'm fixing cars, that I'm doing education, that I'm, that I'm, 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 I'm working in all these different areas that are represented in the room. Why? Because you are being a light in a dark place. And when the person comes and says, hey, do you want to participate in this activity? That gripping scripture, the power of God, the spirit that's screaming inside of you about holiness will help you to say, no, I can't do that. I don't live that way. Why? Let me show you the gospel. If our approach to why we get together changes, it's a consequence of doing things God's way. Point number two, and the last one for our time together tonight is this. <clears throat> Doing things God's way requires faith. Doing things God's way 
requires faith. Next on your notes, obedience to God's direction is an act of faith. Hey, Elijah. Go sit by the brook, man. Birds come to drop food off to you every day, twice a day. I don't know about you, but if you just told me that, I'd be like, uh, do you need, have you taken your medication today or what? Because this is nuts. This is cray cray, right? Like this is, you are out of your ever living mind. I'm not doing that. This sounds nuts, but if you're going to be in this church for any length of time, you are going to hear me say this again, so just get used to it. Faith is a front end ingredient. Faith is a front end ingredient. What does that mean? Faith happens first. When you pray in faith, asking for God to do something according to His will, you have to pray with faith first. You don't wait for Him to do it and then go in the back end and pray and then you have faith. No, the faith comes on the front end. It happens before the moving of God. And then when he does it, your faith is increased. So the next time you pray in faith, it happens begin at the beginning before what you're asking, that it will happen again and you will grow again. Why ravens to provide for Elijah? Why, ra- why birds? I mean, does anyone pay attention to birds in this room? Uh, Loray, you're Canadian, so that makes sense. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, I mean, if I hear a bird in the tree, I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then I drive in my gasoline-powered vehicle away from it. <laughs> right? If I see him flying in there, I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's cool. And it's about four seconds, and I keep going. I think the majority of people probably act in this way. The only time that I'm really paying attention to birds is if they dug in the trash for that chalupa and they flew over my truck after I washed it and they made a few deposits on my truck, then I'm mad at the birds. Outside of that, I want them to go do their thing somewhere else and just be away from me. I don't, I mean, I know they're they're part of the circle of life and part of the ecosystem when we need them, but it's not a part of almost any of my day thinking about the birds. Why in the world Use this. The Lord shows in this passage He can provide through the smallest of avenues. God provides for His big dog prophet and the major ones of the Old Testament by dropping food off to Him with birds. He's saying every little thing is under my purview. And if I direct ants to build you a house out of sawdust, it's going to happen. Any little thing, the smallest of things, the things that we ignore, the most inconsequential things to us, those are the things that God can use to provide for us. He could have provided for Elijah with angels. He could have had wealthy travelers stop by and be like, hey, that guy looks homeless. Let's give him some food twice a day. 
He could have sent people out from the neighboring cities just to cook meal and just wander out there and just leave it there for him. Could have caused a giant grocery truck with a refrigeration with a full tank of gas to break down next to the brook and he just have food for months. He could have done any of that. But here God shows his command over everything great and small by providing for his man in a small and insignificant way. If we're going to obey God, it is an act of faith. Let me tell you a personal story before we wrap up here today. So 2008, which to my niece, that was forever ago because eight, yeah, she wasn't even born. So, you know, that's an eternity ago. She doesn't know anything, you know, about it. But 2008, we left Phoenix, Arizona, the group of people and went to Texas and helped a friend of ours start a church. And it was just a train wreck. It was bad. It was a terrible experience. It was, you know, crazy. God taught us a lot through it, but it was one of those ways. I wish I could have learned that lesson differently. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was nuts. A lot of great relationships built. God salvaged some things out of it, but ultimately I was like, I'm, I, I would like to be done with this. So ironically, a little bit about three and a half years into the, into the move, um, almost three and a half years, um, God directs us. It's time to leave. And he wants us, he's directing us to come to Phoenix. And he says specifically to me, don't go back to Phoenix as if you made a mistake coming here. Um, Go follow me there. So we moved back here and we lost everything moving to Texas. We lost everything that we had. Um, We were able to keep a truck because we used it for traveling and stuff. Um, The other truck that I had, the only reason that I didn't lose it is because the bank refused to take it back because I was out of money. And they were like, no, we're not taking another vehicle back in the middle of this downturn. You're going to keep it and figure this out, which I did a couple of years later. <clears throat> so going there, we lost everything. Turn around and coming back home um, or coming back here to Phoenix, um, we lost everything again. And we moved here in um, November of 2011. So a little, after, a little more than three years after we went out. <clears throat> we moved here and... Um, uh, we were able to pay the deposit for our apartment in the first month's rent. And they were able to pay all the extra fees to kind of turn on the utilities and the, you know, and the internet and all that kind of stuff so we could search jobs. And we had enough money to pay for the, the December's rent and all those things. But after that, we were busted. We had nothing. And when God said to kind of put it in our heart to, to move back here, we decided we're going to move back there. I don't have a job, but I'm going to start calling all my friends that I know over there. And so we quickly got connected with a friend of mine. Me and my brother-in-law had a job lined up. It was just unfolding beautifully. We're like, man, if you could plan this, this is how you'd plan it. You have a job that you walk into the second day you're there, you know, and you just go and it's not going to be a permanent job, but it's something to kind of get you on your feet until you look for something else. You know, you can all the overtime you want. It's time and a half, double time on holidays and weekends, man. You can just work to your heart's content. We have all this work for you. Great. We were stoked. Talked to the guy multiple times and we got here and the job evaporated. I was like, um, this was going kind of towards to plan. And then all of a sudden I can't get a call back from this guy. He disappears. You know, I, we finally get in touch with him. We try to go meet him. He doesn't, he's not there. And several months later, we find out later the company completely shut down and it was a blessing in disguise, but it was something that really panicked me because 
I had no problem forking out all the money at the beginning to try to get everything rolling because I knew I had a job. Well, the job goes away and Nina and I cashed out any little bit of investment we had left. We had emptied our savings. We emptied out everything that we could finally, finally um, do and nothing was working. I was online six to eight hours a day. I, I couldn't get a job driving a sick person to their doctor's appointment. Like literally, there, there, no one would call me back for any reason. And Nina and I um, started getting the notices. We're turning this off. Rent's due. I haven't seen your check come through. Come on. Here we are sitting in January. This is all being, the things are being, starting to be turned off and all this kind of stuff. And we opened up our app on our phone, handed in a little app and looked over at our bank account. And we had 31 cents to our name. That's all we had. Um, and I didn't know what to do. God, you told us to come out here. We came out to this Carith Brook and sat here, and we're waiting for the ravens now, right, to come in to start feeding us. <clears throat> you told us to come out here. We're coming back out here, and um, uh, we're about to be homeless, God. What are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, I want to work. Let's go. You know, I'm calling all the people I know. Nothing's materializing. So I got a phone call to uh, go up to the church we were attending at the time and play um, the piano for over a holiday service because a lot of people were out. So I went in and played the piano and I found out later that the day that um, I played the piano, there was a lady sitting in the auditorium that I had never really met. She had seen me from a distance and knew me and Nina from our time here before we moved. And, and she said that God put on her heart to take all the money she had in her purse and go give it to Matt. She's like, I was sure it's what I was supposed to do. And then as soon as I started digging all the money out of my purse, I stopped for a second and went, am I supposed to be giving this to him? You know, maybe he doesn't need the money. I mean, what if he has a whole bunch of money? I don't know his financial position. I don't know what's going on, but I want to go. Well, it makes no sense to go dump out all the money in my purse and just go give it to him. That for no reason, the guy didn't even tell me why did some profound thing to say, you know, just go give it to him. And she sat there for about 10 minutes wrestling with the decision and her husband comes up and taps her on the shoulder, real excited and says, hey, give me all the money you got in your purse. She goes, why? She goes, God told me to give it to somebody. And so he takes all the money in the purse and she goes, oh, he must be going to give it to Matt. No, he's not. He's going the other direction. And he takes the money and gives it to somebody else that he found in need. And at that moment, she went, oh, why did I wait? I missed it. I missed it. Oh, man. God, I'm so sorry. If there's something else I'm supposed to do for him, just let me know. I'm just going to keep my eyes open. I don't know, I don't know how, to, how to make this right. I'm sorry, God. Can you just, if there's something else I can do, let me know. Well, I put out all the words to my friends here, you know, I was looking for a job and I didn't know this, but a friend of mine knew this lady and um, went to talk to her and was just passing by in a hallway of the building they were in and said, hey, you know, you, could, you know, got any jobs open? She goes, well, I might have a, like a short little three to six month contract, you know, job that I might need done here for a couple months. Um, uh, why? And he goes, well, I got a friend of mine who's looking for a job. He's like, oh yeah, what's his name? It's like Matt Poole. And she goes, wait, what? He needs a job? Give me his phone number. And she got all excited and told them what I just told you about. I was supposed to give the money and I did it. 
that was uh, somewhere about the 4th or 5th of January, kind of early first week of January. And by January 14th, I had met her twice, talked to her boss, not only went through the hiring process, was, but was working in less than 10 days. I was there middle of January, end of February. She sent an email out to our entire organization. Hey guys, I quit. Just kind of, I'm in, a, in an industry that I don't know very well. I'm trying to learn on the fly. I don't know how to use these tools that I'm, I'm supposed to be using. I'm going through back and forth and going, what do we do? What do we do? Oh my gosh. And so I'm just now getting on my feet. And now the lady who brought me in is quitting. She was my boss. So I immediately start to panic again because I'm really good at freaking out and stuff like that. And I'm sweating, you know, and I, and I get an instant message from her on my, on my machine. Hey, um, meet me in this room. I need to talk to you. And so I went into the room and she goes, um, you're probably freaking out about the email I just sent out. I'm like, yes, I am freaking out. I wasn't really done with my freak out of learning how the job is going, but I'm really freaking out now. And she goes, let me tell you something. In November, I had been applying for a job I really, really, really wanted at a company I loved. And I got the job. They called me and offered me the job, and I don't take any job without praying about it, but I was just, dude, God is good. He gave me what I wanted. And I went into my prayer time, and I asked God, can I take this job? And I knew he was going to say yes, and God said no. She was like, God, what is that? It's not the Chalupa talking, right? That's like, is that, <laughs> I want this job. It's like, no. And she just felt no, so she called him back and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I can't take the job. They called her in December and said, hey, so this job is still open and we're kind of leaving it on the offer, on the table for you. You want to come take it? She's like, give me a day. Praise about it in her heart. She just feels that tension. Don't do it, don't do it. She called him back and said, no. January, they called her back again, and, and she again turned him down. February, I got hired January 14th. February, they called her the first week of February and said, hey, what is going on? You wanted this job forever. You lobbied for it. We want you to be here. How come you just won't come take the job? And she goes, I pray about everything. I just can't do it yet. The guy, she's like, she goes, you offer me the job again? Yep. Well, then give me a day. She went back into her prayer closet, and she said the Spirit of God said, now you can take it. And she goes, God, why in the world did you put me through this? No in November, no in December, no in January, yes in February. What are you doing? She said, just really gently, the Spirit of God reminded her about the thing that we had gone through with getting me the job and the, you know, the money and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I needed you to open the door for Matt. That three to six month contract, I just passed eight and a half years in that job. I did not want to be there eight and a half years. But God in his infinite wisdom provided for my family to the point where we could buy a home, move into a certain school district, and then buy this home 
where we reluctantly but obediently planted a church where we had our first service in that room and then on the next week the first week of our second year we're having church in this house today in a way her obedience led to opening the door of RCC what if she would have said this is nuts I'm just gonna take the job back in November no open door for Matt I'm tired of this God I'm just gonna take it in January no open door for me faith and what God is instructing us to do is imperative because we have no idea of the ripple effect that it's going to have. It was going to be a real great thing. I had the job lined up to come here. An hourly job went into kind of a salary mode career-oriented thing. God only didn't just take something away from me that was less. The company dissolved a few months after we moved back here. He put me in a position not only to provide for my family, but open up a door for us to do this here. God can use anything, hear me on this, big or small, to provide for his children, even disobedience. She was disobedient and did not take all that money out of her purse and bring it to me like she felt like the Spirit of God told her to do. And even in that disobedient, our all-powerful, all-knowing, creative God used that. Knowing she would have that conviction and carry it with her to drop another opportunity, a greater opportunity, to provide for me and my family and ultimately carve the way for us to be here today. Doing things God's way rarely looks like we think it will, but doing things God's way puts us in a position to be a part of the most wonderful masterpiece.